Hello, and welcome to the Quilt Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Frances O'Rourke Dow, and I'm so excited to share this year's Christmas story with you. To celebrate the release of Dorothy's Christmas Star, we're offering a free downloadable pattern and a free downloadable print version of the story. Both of these are available on the Quilt Fiction website, quiltfiction.com. Before we get started, I want to share some exciting news with you. December marks the launch of the Quilt Fiction Story Guild, a new membership community for everyone who loves quilt fiction. Are you ready to catch up with our old friends Eula, Bess, Florence, Dorothy, and Emmeline? Are you curious about what's happening with Bess and Father Joe? Eager to find out if Eula's really ready to become a grandmother? Are you waiting for the answer to that question of all questions, will Florence finally get married? Then you'll want to be there on New Year's Eve when we launch the first episode of Friendship Album 1934, Forget Me Not, which will only be available to Story Guild members. That's not all you'll find in the Story Guild. Also coming in January, a new and contemporary Milton Falls novel, Diary of a Mad Quilter. You'll get weekly audio updates about our heroine, Marnie Fetzer, a retired third-grade teacher whose life is filled up with quilts, guild meetings, and grandchildren, and her recently retired husband, Daryl, who seems to be developing a thing for featherweights. If you've wondered what life is like in today's Milton Falls, Ohio, you'll want to tune in. There's even more that comes with your membership. I'll be publishing audio short stories about our old friendship album friends and other quilting stories as well. We'll have quilt-alongs and giveaways. Who knows, maybe we'll even have a pie-eating contest or two. So, how do you join the Story Guild? It's easy. Just come over to quiltfiction.com to learn about your options. You can get an annual subscription for just $6 a month. Not sure you want to commit for a full year? There's a month-to-month subscription available as well. If you're not ready for a monthly commitment, register for a free account so you'll be kept in the loop about contests, quilt-alongs, and giveaways. I hope you'll sign up today, and to encourage you to do just that, we've got some fun things for anyone who subscribes during the month of December. First, we'll mail you a set of eight holiday postcards as soon as you join. Take a look at the cards on the website. They're absolutely darling. Second, for joining the Quilt Fiction Story Guild this month, you'll receive a free, downloadable Friendship Album 1933 audiobook with updated chapters. Please note Friendship Album 1933 is no longer available on the free Quilt Fiction podcast. It will be available for sale in our Etsy store in 2023, but if you join the Story Guild in December, you won't have to pay $39.95 to buy it. Interested? I hope you are. After you finish listening to today's story, hop on over to quiltfiction.com to learn more. And now, on with the Christmas story.
Dorothy's Christmas Star, 1918. When Hannah asked if Josephine Shepard could come over to play on Saturday afternoon, Dorothy Johnson was happy to say yes. Better to have the girl occupied than underfoot, she thought, as she plucked potatoes from the bin under the sink and dropped them into a large white bowl. Until recently, Hannah had been her quiet child, a peaceful presence amidst the clamor of her older brothers, but ever since she'd turned eleven, she'd become fidgety and flighty. On Saturday mornings, when Dorothy dropped Hannah off at her mother's house on the way to work, she often suggested that the girl might stay the night and go to church with her grandparents in the morning. For years, Martina had usually been happy to comply, but in recent months she was more likely to sigh and say, Oh, Dorothy, I just don't have the steam for it today. So a playmate to occupy her daughter on a cold December Saturday sounded just fine to Dorothy. She was taken by surprise, though, when Hannah asked her a moment later if she and Josephine could have a tea party in the front parlor. Where did you get the notion to have a tea party from? Dorothy asked as she carried the bowl of potatoes over to the sink. That's a big change from the mud pies you were making out back with Letitia last summer. Mrs. Shepard is reading Josie and her sisters a book called Anne of Green Gables, Hannah explained from the kitchen table, where she was writing out her spelling word sentences for school the next day. Anne has a tea party for her friend Diana, only she gives Diana liquor to drink and Diana gets sick. Dorothy stopped in her tracks. Tell me again what story this is. I told you, it's called Anna Green Gables. Josie's aunt, who's a librarian in Washington, D.C., sent it. She's been telling me parts of the story every day at recess. Anne is an orphan, and she has red hair. Dorothy shook her head. I'm sorry, why did this Anna Green Gables give her friend liquor to drink? Well, she didn't know it was liquor, Hannah replied. She thought it was fruit juice. Well, if you and Josephine Shepard have a tea party here, you'll be drinking tea. And it's up to you to make that tea and whatever else you'll be serving. I don't get home from Mrs. Rudolph's until one thirty, and I won't have time to fix anything. Do you think I can make ginger snaps at Mama Martina's? You'll have to ask your grandmother, but I suspect she'll say yes. Dorothy put the bowl of potatoes down and retrieved her paring knife from the drawer. You should invite Letitia to your tea party. You two played together nearly every day over the summer, but it seems like I don't see her around much anymore. All Letitia wants to do is play marbles, Hannah said. None of us girls like her anymore. She's too babyish. She's just young, Dorothy told her daughter. Same as you. No need to grow up fast, especially if it means leaving good friends behind. I can't help it if I'm mature. Hannah replied. Josie, too. We're the most mature girls in our grade. One thing was for sure, Dorothy thought as she began peeling potatoes. Josephine Shepard was the richest girl in their grade. That's not something she'd say to Hannah, though. Hannah didn't need to be thinking about who had money and who didn't. Most of the children who attended Lincoln Heights Elementary didn't have a dime to their name. Their mothers and fathers worked, and there wasn't much left over after they cashed their paychecks and paid the rent. All the same, the children showed up for school freshly scrubbed and wearing clean clothes, 
typically hand-me-downs, but never torn or worn out. Hannah, being the only girl in her family, was luckier than most. She usually started the school year with two new dresses, one for school and one for church, plus two or three perfectly nice dresses that her older cousins had grown out of that were as good as new to Hannah. But Josephine Shepard came from a different kind of family, a family that considered itself a part of the so-called Talented Tenth. Josephine's father, Harold Shepard, was a graduate of Wilberforce College, where he'd studied medicine, and he was one of three colored doctors in Milton Falls, all of whom had homes on Sloan Avenue, otherwise known as Snob Hill. That was where all of Milton Falls' colored families of means lived. There were, among others, the Paynes and the Scarboroughs, the Walkers and the Leanders, the Stokes and the Wrights, twelve families in all, all of whom agreed with W.B. Du Bois that college-educated colored men should become leaders in their communities in an effort to uplift the race. Watching her daughter neatly writing out her sentences, Dorothy thought that it might not be a bad thing for Hannah to associate with the little girls on Snob Hill. Not because Dorothy thought they were better than the other girls at school and around the neighborhood. Not at all. In fact, it saddened her that Hannah considered herself too grown up for the likes of Letitia Jones, who was amiable and easygoing, with the kind of good manners that didn't announce themselves but were evident in the way she always greeted Dorothy politely and made sure to say thank you after any visit. But the girls who lived on Sloan Avenue were being groomed to go to college at Spelman in Atlanta or Tuskegee Female College in Alabama or even Oberlin. That's what Dorothy wanted for all of her children, for Hannah, Buddy, Henry, and Jackson, a college education. Wallace thought she was foolish for dreaming of such a thing, but Dorothy thought it was better to want too much for her children than too little. No, it wouldn't hurt Hannah to befriend other young ladies who were walking the same path as she was, and maybe, once she'd established herself in the group, she could pull Letitia Jones along with her. As for that Anna Green Gables foolishness, well, Dorothy didn't know about that. Maybe Hannah could start a Bible-reading class that met in the parlor on Sunday afternoons, just for a little contrast. Josie Shepard showed up at the Johnson's front door Saturday, just as the clock on the mantel chimed twice. She was wearing a pink dress with a shawl collar, a side-closing bodice, and a gathered skirt. Hannah, too, was dressed for the occasion in a white drop-waist dress that looked almost new if you squinted. They were both pretty girls, and Dorothy could tell they were pleased with themselves and each other. "'You have a lovely home, Mrs. Johnson,' Josie told her after she'd handed her coat to Hannah. "'That's an awfully nice clock over the fireplace.' "'Well, thank you,' Dorothy replied, hiding a smile at the girl's formal tone." My mother and father gave it to me and Mr. Johnson as a wedding present. It's charming, Josie assured her as she looked around the room as though seeking something else to compliment. Her eye landed on Dorothy's sewing basket beside the rocking chair. Hannah tells me you make quilts. I've never met anyone who made quilts before. Your mother doesn't quilt, Dorothy asked, surprised. Every woman in her family quilted. 
Her mother, grandmother, sister, and nieces were all quilt makers, and even Hannah had pieced a few small quilts, although she preferred books over needlework. No, ma'am, although she enjoys making needlepoint pillows, Josie informed her. She says that needlepoint is the most refined of the needle arts. Well, it wouldn't surprise me one bit, Dorothy concurred. Well, you girls have a nice time. I'll be in the kitchen if you need me. After she'd sat down at the kitchen table with her afternoon cup of coffee, Dorothy wished she'd thought to bring her sewing basket with her. The light coming through the window was still strong enough to stitch by, and Dorothy could have worked on the quilt she was making Hannah for Christmas. The pattern was as pretty as could be, a repeating star block in gold, red, and green, and it was fairly easy, too. Still, she needed to give it more attention as she was going to finish in time. The last week or so, Mrs. Rudolph had been asking her to stay late as she made preparations for her annual Christmas party, which meant Dorothy had less time than she'd like for her own Christmas preparations. Well, she could wait until later to retrieve the basket, Dorothy decided as she listened to the soft music of the girls' voices as they chatted in the parlor. Although she hadn't hidden the fact that she was working on a new quilt, she also hadn't announced who it was for, and Josie seemed like the sort of girl who might ask for those sorts of details. Turning to the window, Dorothy wondered when the boys would come home. Surely their entrance would provide enough distraction for her to get her things. Jackson and Henry were bagging groceries at Brown's, where they worked most weekends, and they probably wouldn't be back until around six. At this hour, Bud was still at the stables behind the dairy, either helping Wallace clean out the delivery wagon or grooming Percy. Oh, how Bud loved that horse. In fact, what he wanted for Christmas was a new blanket to put over Percy's shoulders when Wallace got back after his morning deliveries. Dorothy had offered to donate an old quilt, but Bud seemed almost offended by the offer. Percy deserves the best, Mama he'd insisted. Now, if you want to make him a new quilt, that's a whole other possibility. Dorothy smiled, remembering Bud's remark. She liked Percy as much as any other horse she knew, but not so much that she was willing to spend hours making the animal a quilt. As for Bud, he'd get what his brothers were getting for Christmas, a new shirt sewn out of soft white cotton and a pair of gray woolen socks knit by Wallace's mother. There wasn't money for anything more. The good news was there'd be food and plenty of it. They'd have eggs, bacon, and sweet rolls for breakfast on Christmas morning, same as always, and then after church they'd make their way to Mama's house where the tables and the sideboards would practically sag from the weight of all the good things to eat. Ham, fried chicken and gravy, creamed corn and corn pudding, three kinds of cornbread, bowls of mashed sweet potatoes, black-eyed peas and lima beans, and more cakes and pies than they could possibly ever eat, although somehow they always managed to finish them all. Of course, that was nothing compared to Mrs. Rudolph's Christmas dinner preparations, Dorothy thought as she glanced at her hands, which were badly in need of salve after all the scrubbing and silver polishing she'd been doing lately. After 15 years of working for the woman, Dorothy knew exactly what needed to be done, from the ironing of the linens to the baking of the pies. 
She was also prepared for Mrs. Rudolph's annual request that Dorothy serve at the party. I'll be with my own family on Christmas, ma'am, Dorothy replied every year, so I'm afraid I won't be available. The first time she'd given this answer, Mrs. Rudolph fussed and fumed, saying she might very well fire Dorothy if she didn't work on Christmas. But when Dorothy had said as politely as she could that Mrs. Rudolph was welcome to do as she pleased, but she didn't work on Christmas, the woman immediately gave in. Very well, then, but be here the next morning all the earlier. Just like old Ebenezer Scrooge, Dorothy laughed to herself now. The fact was, Mrs. Rudolph knew from the very beginning she wouldn't get a better worker than Dorothy Johnson, who was barely twenty that first year of service, but a good cook and the sort of housekeeper who paid attention to small details, as did Mrs. Rudolph. In fact, the two women had similar standards for what made for a clean house and a good meal, and, as a result, they generally approved of each other and gave one another as much leeway as they deemed necessary. Mrs. Rudolph had let Dorothy bring her babies to work until they were old enough to leave with Johnetta Wilson down at the end of Lincoln Avenue, and for her part, Dorothy stayed late when asked and never remarked on the things she noticed that surely Mrs. Rudolph would prefer she not see or hear. These included the frequent quarrels Mrs. Rudolph had with her husband, a puffed-up attorney who deposited his empty whiskey bottles underneath his desk for Dorothy to collect in the morning, and her children's sassy replies to Mrs. Rudolph's requests. Why did so many rich people have sassy children? Dorothy wondered. Of course, Josie Shepard wasn't the least bit sassy, so maybe it was just the children of rich white people who didn't know how to behave themselves. Almost as if she'd overheard Dorothy's thoughts and wanted to prove herself a well-mannered girl, Josie came into the kitchen carrying her cup and plate. As she wiped off the crumbs into the sink, she informed Dorothy that the girls were going to play in Hannah's room, and then said, "'Your home is so lovely and warm. I feel like we're kindred spirits, you and I. I've always preferred houses that were cozy like yours.' Well, I'm sure your house is lovely and warm, too, Dorothy told the girl, not really sure at all, but feeling like she should say it all the same. Josie didn't reply for a moment. Finally, she said, My house is nice, it's true, and the curtains were made in New York. I hope you'll come visit sometime. When Josie left an hour later, Dorothy watched through the window as Hannah walked her new friend up the street toward home. Sloan Avenue was only four blocks away, but for all intents and purposes, it was a hundred miles from where the Johnsons lived. She had to stop herself from laughing, imagining Emma Jean Shepard, Josie's mother, inviting the likes of Dorothy Johnson to her house. Their daughters might be friends, but the mothers lived in different worlds. Dorothy wouldn't expect an invitation any time soon. Later, Dorothy would wonder how she didn't see it coming. She'd been so focused on the good things Hannah's friendship with Josie could bring that it hadn't occurred to her it might breed discontent in her little girl. She certainly hadn't imagined that Hannah might start feeling ashamed of where she came from. "'Well, I could have told you that would happen,' Wallace said on the way home from church, the children ahead of them and out of earshot. 
It was the Sunday a week before Christmas, but Dorothy was feeling none of the Christmas joy that usually filled her this time of year. Of course, Wallace had noticed, and so she told him about what she'd heard the day before. So why didn't you tell me it would happen, she asked, a note of irritation in her voice. Why didn't you give me any warning? Wallace shrugged. Because you never listened to me. Dorothy rolled her eyes and sighed. Oh, if she only hadn't overheard Hannah, Josie, and Ida Leander, another snob hill girl, chatting in the parlor on Saturday afternoon. She'd been in the kitchen, piecing Hannah's quilt top, while the girls practiced their parts for the Christmas play, their laughter filling the air as they bumped into each other and forgot their lines. When they'd finally exhausted themselves, Ida declared, I think it's thrilling that Miss Tate is getting married at Christmas and that Mrs. Calhoun has given us permission to have a going-away tea. Yes, but even so, school won't be the same when we come back after the Christmas holiday, Josie lamented and then sighed dramatically. Oh, it will be impossible to replace her in our hearts. Let's talk about what everyone will bring to the tea. Hannah said, and Dorothy shook her head. That was her baby, always looking forward to a good meal. It was funny how those girls had gone tea party crazy, she thought. It seemed like they were always looking for an opportunity or an excuse to heat up some water and pour it in a cup. Dorothy wondered if she would be expected to contribute a dish, and if so, what? A platter of fried chicken? A basket of biscuits? The biscuits would be easy enough, but Wallace would fuss when he heard that Dorothy had cooked a bird from their flock for a tea party. Still, what choice did she have in the matter? Hannah couldn't go to the party empty-handed. Maybe Dorothy could convince her that a pie would make a perfectly nice offering. Apple, maybe, or sweet potato. My mother will be bringing carrot soup, which Mrs. Calhoun says we can keep warm on the stove in her office. Josie informed the group. Ida says her mother has agreed to make rolls and punch, and Hattie and Margaret say their mothers will bring bowls of nuts and raisins. Oh, and Mary's mother will bring tea. It wouldn't be a tea party without tea. Tea or no, that didn't sound like much of a party to Dorothy. She wondered what Hannah had told the girls her mother would bring. Wouldn't that take the cake if all the rich ladies brought barely enough food for a squirrel to nibble on and Dorothy was asked to bring the main course? She leaned forward in her seat, bracing herself for the bad news. But when Hannah spoke, all she said was, I think that all sounds perfectly elegant. Does everyone's mother know to be there right after school on Friday? Yes, they'll all walk over together, Josie said. My mother... Ida's, Margaret's, Mary's, and Hattie's. They're meeting at my house at 2.55 on the dot. Dorothy waited another moment for Hannah to say, Should my mother meet them at your house, Josie, or should she meet them at school? But no questions were asked. No mention of Dorothy was made at all. Clearly, Dorothy Johnson was not invited to Miss Tate's going-away tea. Dropping the nearly finished quilt top in the basket, Dorothy stood up and made her way to the sink. She had scrubbed it until near gleaming this morning before she'd left for work, but that didn't keep her from grabbing a rag and giving it another go-over now.
Why on earth would Hannah exclude her from their teacher's going-away party? Dorothy was well acquainted with Miss Tate, who, like the other teachers at Lincoln Elementary, visited each one of her students' homes in the days before fall classes began. When she'd stopped by the Johnsons, Dorothy had served her strong coffee and a slice of rich chocolate cake, and Hannah had practically glowed with delight as her new teacher praised Dorothy's cooking as well as the lovely quilt draped over the back of her chair. So, what had changed? Well, Hannah had gotten herself a group of new friends. That's one thing that had changed. And while Hannah seemed to fit in just fine with her little circle, apparently her mother did not. My girls went through the same thing, Dorothy's sister Ruth assured her a few nights later. The two women were quilting Hannah's Christmas quilt, which was stretched on the quilting frame that Ruth's husband Samuel had lowered from the ceiling after supper. I remember when Nettie was right around Hannah's age. Mama, she said, I'm just too old to need a mother anymore. So I told her that was fine and she could wash all of her own clothes from then on and while she was at it, she could fix supper too. She changed her tune pretty fast after that. Well, that's not the same thing, Dorothy told Ruth. There's a difference between feeling too grown up for your mother and feeling ashamed of her. I don't know why you're letting her spend so much time with those Snob Hill girls, Ruth said as she threaded her needle. I know Hannah is smart as a whip, but those girls aren't our kind. I'm surprised they let Hannah into their little group. What I don't understand is that it sounds like they're always meeting up at your house. Why is that? Dorothy shrugged. I don't know. Maybe it's the strangeness of being in a house that's only got two rooms downstairs and three rooms up. Maybe it feels like a dollhouse to them. Josie Shepard's always going on about how cozy it is. Well, that's it right there. I mean that they like the way your house always feels so cozy and warm. Do you ever feed them when they're there? Nothing special, Dorothy told her sister. Usually they come over on a Saturday afternoon, so I don't have time to fix them anything fancy. But I'll heat up some biscuits if there are any left over from breakfast or make a batch of sugar cookies. They're used to much finer fare at home, I have no doubt. I wouldn't count on it, Ruth told her. You ever spent any time with those rich colored folks? They're always trying to eat like white people, always putting sauces on things instead of gravy. And have you ever had aspic? It'll put you off food for at least a month. Rich people wouldn't know good food if it stood up and slapped them in the face. Well, those girls might like my house and my cooking, Dorothy said, and she could hear a note of self-pity in her voice. But not one of them thought to ask me to contribute to their little party. Now did they? Ruth gave her a tender look. You're remembering the old days, aren't you, when we first moved to Milton Falls? Twenty years ago, and I can still hear them calling us poor country mice, Dorothy said, going on about how backwards we were. They acted like Milton Falls was the big city, and we were lucky to be here. Oh, it had been awful, how mean those girls had been with their snubs and their slights, the way they'd suggested that Dorothy and Ruth stole their dresses from the church charity box. 
It wasn't until later that Dorothy had realized the dresses they wore, sewn by their mother, an excellent seamstress, were finer than anything the city girls wore. Simpler, maybe, but you'd have to go to Paris, France to find better stitching than Martina's. Dorothy was sure of it. Still, those girls made her feel like she wasn't much and never would be. The funny thing is, all of them were country folk, too, Ruth said with a laugh. They just got to the city a little sooner than we did. Wallace grew up in Milton Falls, and I had to teach him everything he knows about putting in a garden and keeping chickens, Dorothy said. It was pitiful. I remember he barely knew where eggs came from when you first met him. The two women laughed. They'd been making fun of their husbands to each other for a long time now, and it was always good for lifting up their spirits. But Dorothy's mood didn't stay lifted for long. If Hannah's friends liked my house so much and liked my food so much, why didn't they want me to bring a plate of cookies to their little party? Maybe they wanted to, Ruth pointed out. Maybe it was Hannah who said no. Dorothy sighed, realizing Ruth was probably right. I can't believe it. My own daughter is ashamed of me. Well, she's at an age to be foolish, Ruth said as she pulled her needle up through the fabric. She'll grow out of it. I just hope she's not so foolish that she doesn't appreciate this quilt. It's as pretty as a picture. Her friend's mothers don't make quilts, Dorothy informed her sister, so my guess is Hannah won't be the least bit impressed by this one. Well, give it to me then, Ruth said with a smile. I'll be impressed with it from here to Sunday. The going-away party for Miss Tate was on Friday afternoon, after the children had been let out for the day. Hannah had chatted happily away about it all week, telling Dorothy about how the girls in charge of the party had made invitations for the teachers during recess, how they were planning to sing Miss Tate a song as she left, maybe Wings Over Jordan or maybe There is a Bomb in Gilead. She didn't bring up the refreshments, and Dorothy wondered if anything had been added to that pitiful menu of soup, tea, and raisins. She did her best to keep her hurt feelings about being left out to herself. Ruth was right. Eleven was a foolish age for a girl. Hannah would learn to appreciate her home and her mother as she got older, the way that Dorothy had learned to appreciate her own mother, whose counsel she ignored when she'd been younger, but had relied on ever since she'd had children of her own. On Friday morning, Hannah appeared in the kitchen, wearing her best church dress. She had a satin white bow in her hair that Dorothy didn't recognize. Josie gave it to me. Hannah explained. I told her I didn't have anything to give to her in return, and she said my friendship was gift enough. That was nice of her to say, Dorothy replied. Still, if you'd like, you could embroider a handkerchief for her. It's easy enough to do, and it's a pretty little gift. Hannah's eyes widened. Oh, Mama, that would be wonderful. Could we work on it tomorrow when you get back from Mrs. Rudolph's? I don't see why not. Dorothy said. It might have to wait until tomorrow night. Mrs. Rudolph has me working hard getting ready for her Christmas party. I wish you didn't have to work, Hannah said as she pulled on her coat. 
Josie's mother doesn't work, and she has time to do all sorts of nice things. There's no shame in working, Dorothy said. Besides, it makes me appreciate it when I have time to sit down and stitch on a quilt. Still, think about all the quilts you can make if you didn't have to go to Mrs. Rudolph's, Hannah pointed out as she opened the door. Piles and piles of them. That would make her a rich woman indeed, Dorothy thought as she gathered her things for the day. She pushed back the thought that Hannah wished she was more like the other girls' mothers. There was no shame in working and plenty of trouble that came to those who were too often idle. Another thing her girl would learn as she got older. When she arrived at Mrs. Rudolph's house twenty minutes later, her employer was already fit to be tied. The grocer has fumbled our order and it won't be delivered until tomorrow, she cried the second Dorothy walked into the door. I hate to ask it of you, Dorothy, but could you work a full day tomorrow instead of half? Take this afternoon off instead. In fact, take the whole day off and I'll pay you for half a day for your trouble. How's that? That would be fine, I guess, Dorothy said. Of course, there had been a few things Mrs. Rudolph wanted before Dorothy went home for the day. There were beds to make and breakfast dishes to wash. But all the same, Dorothy was back in her own kitchen by 10.30, not quite sure what to do with herself. She had a list of dishes to prepare for Christmas dinner on Tuesday, but it was too soon to get started on them. Hannah's quilt was done and hidden away, as were the boys' shirts. Wallace had surprised Dorothy by coming home the day before with new pocket knives to add to Henry and Jackson's Christmas bounty and a blanket for Percy to give to that silly horse. Even more surprising was the book he'd bought for Hannah. She's been talking about that Anna Green Gables night and day, Wallace had said, sounding a bit sheepish as he'd handed Dorothy the book. And when I pointed out to the bookseller that the cover had a bent corner, he let me have it at a reduced price. So don't fuss at me for buying it. Dorothy hadn't fussed. It was the same way every year. She and Wallace decided what gifts the children would get for Christmas, and every year Wallace went out and bought one more thing for each of them. He'd take on an extra shift at the dairy in January to make up for it. Glancing out the window now, Dorothy was glad to be home early. A storm was clearly in the works, the sky growing grayer by the minute as the winds whipped frantically through the tree's bare branches. She thought about the tea party for Miss Tate and the meager offerings that would be served. Carrot soup and bowls of raisins. Who ever heard of such a thing? How could Dorothy stand for it when she had a clutch of hens out back born in October and at ten weeks the exact right age for at least one of them to be transformed into a delicious platter of fried chicken? Wallace would fuss at Dorothy's using one of their chickens for a tea party and he'd fuss at the cost of the chocolate needed for the cake. But Dorothy was getting paid for half a day's work she hadn't had to earn. Free money, she thought, even though she knew that it was money that could be used to pay bills. Besides, he would be one to talk with all of his unplanned Christmas gifts. Well, this could be what he gave to Dorothy for Christmas, she thought as she pulled her coat back on and headed for the hen house. 
he could give her the gift of not fussing at her because she wanted to do something nice for Miss Alvira Tate, who had been Hannah's teacher for two years and made her the kind of girl who couldn't wait to get her hands on a new book. Is that why you're doing this? she asked herself on the way to the hen house. As a way of thanking Miss Tate for being a wonderful teacher? Or are you doing it to teach Hannah Johnson a lesson? That maybe her mama was a country mouse, but there wasn't a thing in the world wrong with that. Not a thing in the world. She did her best to push away the tiny voice that asked, Who's the one who needs to learn that lesson, Dorothy Johnson? Are you really sure it's Hannah? The snow had started to fall by the time Dorothy set out for the school. She took careful steps over the slick road, her balance already thrown off by the large, quilt-covered basket she was carrying. Children streamed from the opposite direction, the boys complaining in loud voices that there wasn't enough snow for snowballs yet. Just wait thirty minutes, Dorothy wanted to tell them, but she kept her mouth shut, not wanting to draw attention to herself, or, more to the point, to the contents of her basket. Anyone within five feet of her would get a whiff of the wonderful smells coming up through the quilt, fried chicken, chocolate cake, and hot coffee. Dorothy's own stomach was rumbling. She'd been so busy cooking that she hadn't had time for lunch. She quashed the uncharitable thought that there would probably be some carrot soup left over. It was Christmas, after all, and those women couldn't help it if no one had ever taught them how to cook. When Dorothy reached the school, it appeared to be locked down tight. No light shone from its windows, even though the school had been wired for electricity two years before, and usually the light stayed on until early evening. But it was the last day of school before the Christmas holiday, so maybe the custodian had been eager to finish the day's work and go home early. Now she remembered that the party was to be held in Mrs. Calhoun's large office, which was tucked away in the back of the building, where the learned woman could retreat from the school's crowded hallways when need be. Sure enough, Dorothy heard lively chattering as she got closer to the principal's office and saw light spilling through the open door. There was a table set up in the hallway, draped with a white tablecloth, a pretty china soup tureen occupying pride of place. Dorothy almost felt sorry for the party-goers, thinking of the tables and sideboards overflowing with food, waiting for her and her family at Martina's house on Tuesday. Oh, these poor rich folks, she thought as she made her way into the office. They have no idea the kind of poverty they live in. Mama, Hannah called when she saw Dorothy. What are you doing here? I just wanted to give my best wishes to Miss Tate. Dorothy said, smiling at the women and girls gathered around the young teacher at the center of the room. And I couldn't come empty-handed, now could I? Do I smell fried chicken? The formidable Mrs. Calhoun asked from behind her desk, because I believe I would give my left arm for a piece of chicken. I'm famished. She looked at the woman standing next to her. Not that your soup doesn't smell marvelous as well, Mrs. Shepherd, but it's been a long day, and looking out the window, I believe I'll require extra fortification to get home through this storm. Let me get this set out on the table, Dorothy said, nodding toward the basket. I brought coffee and cake, too, just to round things out. 
I'd very much like to try a bowl of your soup, Mrs. Shepherd. I'm sure it's delicious. Mrs. Shepherd smiled. I'll trade you a bowl of soup for a piece of your chicken, if you don't mind. A few minutes later, Dorothy had the chicken, cake, and coffee all set out. Now this is a party, she thought, with a satisfied nod, and sure enough, Mrs. Calhoun and the other women quickly filled the hallway, the girls positioning themselves behind the table to serve their elders. Dorothy carried the empty basket back into the office, where Hannah stood, arms crossed, a frown on her face. Mama, you shouldn't have done that, the girl complained. There was no need. Dorothy tried and failed to hide a smile, still thinking about those nuts and raisins. Oh, I'd say there was a need, a very serious need. Still, you shouldn't have, Hannah insisted, looking like she might stomp her foot at any second. Dorothy felt her patience with her daughter wearing thin. Why, have you gotten too fancy for fried chicken? Why would you say such a thing? Hannah asked, sounding like she thought Dorothy had gone crazy. You make the best food of anyone I know. So why didn't you ask me to cook for your little tea party then? Hannah shook her head, as though she couldn't believe her mother would ask such a thing. Because you work all the time as it is, the other girls' mothers have all the time in the world to make dishes for a tea party. We agreed we wouldn't ask you to make anything, even if you are the best cook. She paused and then allowed herself a small smile. I think everyone wished we had asked you once we set the table. Where's the tea? Dorothy asked, suddenly realizing she hadn't seen a teapot out in the hallway. Hannah leaned forward and whispered, Mary's mother was supposed to bring it, but she forgot. Or at least she says she forgot. I'm not sure she knows how to make tea. Everybody knows how to make tea, Dorothy insisted, although she supposed she could be wrong about that. After all, she'd been wrong about why she hadn't been asked to cook for the party. She looked at Hannah with a sudden wonder. Hannah wasn't ashamed of her mother. She was trying to take care of her. And then Dorothy almost laughed, thinking about how, when she told him the story later, Wallace would take all the credit for raising such a fine child. I would have been happy to cook something, you know, she told Hannah, reaching out to straighten the girl's bow. I could have baked a cake last night after everyone had gone to bed. I don't even know how you had time to cook today, Hannah said. Why aren't you still at Mrs. Rudolph's? Dorothy explained that she'd been given a paid day off, but would be working all day on Saturday. So I had some extra time to fry a chicken and make a cake, she finished, and I was happy to do it. But you could have done something you enjoyed, Hannah protested. You could have spent your time working on a quilt. Maybe when we get home, Dorothy told her daughter. In the meantime, let's go get ourselves something to eat. Are you really going to eat that carrot soup? Once again, Hannah lowered her voice to a whisper. Josie says it's awful. She says she wishes she lived with us so she could eat your cooking at every meal. She's a nice little girl, that Josie, Dorothy said as she led Hannah out of the room. Who knows, maybe next Christmas I'll make the poor thing a quilt. 
Thanks so much for listening to the Quilt Fiction Podcast. Please go to quiltfiction.com to download your free pattern and your downloadable print version of the story. And don't forget to check out the Quilt Fiction Story Guild. Happy holidays, everyone, and Merry Christmas. The Quilt Fiction Podcast is a production of Milton Falls Media Incorporated. All rights reserved.